Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We encourage you to grab a Bible if you have one, or of course, your phone, you can pull up this text. And turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11 this morning. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. About 14 months ago, as you all know, uh, things changed. Author Andy Crouch predicted that the pandemic would be one of three things. A snowstorm, a long winter, or a small ice age. Well, we all know by now what we've gone through and frankly are still going through is not an overnight snowstorm. And if it is a long winter, it has been a very, 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 very long winter. Now, I'm helped by this image. Some of you might think it's a very depressing image, but I'm actually helped by it. I find it helpful and I find it hopeful. Helpful because it accurately names reality. And as counselors say, facts are friendly. Facts are friendly and it helps me name reality. This past year has indeed been very disruptive for our church. It's as if God has cleared the ground. And it means like all churches, we are being asked by God to re plant as a church. That image helps me name a reality that it would be easy to deny from wishful thinking. So it's helpful, but it's also strangely hopeful for me because while we are in a way church planting again, this time we're not planting as a seed, we're planting as a sapling, a sturdy sapling. We know who we are. We know what we're good at. We know what we're not good at as a community. And we know what God is uniquely calling us to to be as a church. And so for the past few months, we've been imagining what kind of tree this sapling could grow into. And we've been locating that on a 10-year Timeline In 10 years, what are our branches and what kind of fruit is growing from these branches? Well, we see a tree with six major branches, many more, of course, but six big branches, what we're calling the intersection of faith and work. And by the way, if you've missed any of these, I've been kind of unpacking some of the broad themes of these branches through our sermon series. And you can go back. They're all listed on our website. So first, the intersection of faith and work, the cultivation of what we're calling holistic Christian maturity, things like emotional health, not just Bible trivia, the initiation of what we're calling redemptive hospitality, the connection of the campus and the church, the mission of every member. And a couple weeks ago, we began talking about the sixth branch a vision of cross-cultural community. Last week, we started to talk about this final branch. We looked at Pentecost 
And we discovered that Pentecost is the birthday of a miraculously cross-cultural community. The risen Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit birthed a community that combines what Abraham Cho calls difference and interdependence. So at Pentecost, there were so many differences, ethnic differences, national differences, socioeconomic differences, gender differences, age differences, and yet they were united by the Holy Spirit. They were united by the risen Jesus, and they were united in their worship. It's an amazing, amazing moment in redemptive history. But here's the thing. In this united worship gathering, God the Spirit did not blunt their differences. He didn't give them one language, some universal language to speak. No, God showcased their differences to his glory. The Spirit allowed folks to speak their neighbor's language in worship of God. See, God loves difference in unity. God himself, as Joe points out, is difference in unity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. And he wants his community to be similar. But why does our experience in church fall short of this glorious beginning in Pentecost? Why is this hour called the most segregated hour, according to sociologists? Well, to talk about this, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. I'll read the text, and you can follow along, and then we'll pray to ask for God's help. So this is God's word. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, keyword here, and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, non-Jew, and not like a Jew, and when he's saying that, he's talking about eating dietary laws and other ways that set him apart as a Jewish man. Well, if you're living like a Gentile, in other words, eating with other Gentiles, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not, quote, Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not made right with God or justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Lord... Would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you. And Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see truth, that we would be made 
flexible to change according to your word and your ways. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, many of you know this, but every morning I wake up, I put water in my goose neck kettle. I get out my scale. I measure 50 grams of locally roasted coffee beans. Uh, I, I, I pour the, the, the just boiled water. You know, I sort of wait 20 seconds because that makes the temperature better. Uh, and I, I sort of pour the water over the paper filter to get out the papery taste because that's important, everybody. That's very important. And then I preheat the Chemex, which I've been using lately. It's a coffee brewing way. And then the magic happens. At that point, I slowly pour hot water over the coffee and I watch the fresh coffee trickle down. As you can tell, I don't just love the finished product, but I actually love the routine. I may love the routine more than the finished product, to be totally honest. I love watching the grinds bloom. I love watching the steam rise. I love watching the coffee slowly trickle down. Well, one morning I was watching the coffee trickle down, and I wondered if this could be an illustration of some kind. Now, this is the preacher's curse. Everything is a potential illustration. Just ask my family. And I started to think, maybe this is a good illustration of how the gospel changes culture. The coffee's like the gospel, and the water's like the spirit. Work with me here. And if the spirit is just poured out on the gospel in our hearts, then the impact will trickle down into all of our lives and into all of society. And I, and I would call this the gospel trickle-down theory. If the church just embraced the gospel in our heart and shared the gospel to others, then maybe all social ills will take care of themselves on autopilot without us having to do anything. This means we shouldn't spend time talking about things like injustice or racism or any other social harm. And it means we shouldn't do anything, certainly do anything about these things. The gospel, after all, will trickle down. This gospel trickle-down theory, I hope you can tell by my tone, I'm not into the gospel trickle-down theory. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But the the gospel trickle-down theory was very popular, especially in white churches during the civil rights struggle. Most white churches in America said, don't get involved in these conversations. Just focus on the gospel. And the problem of race will take care of itself. It's very popular today. Some might think, let's not talk about cross-cultural community in the church. Let's not spend time talking about this at our church. Let's not open this can of worms. Let's just focus on the gospel And these problems will take care of themselves. Now, there are many problems with this gospel trickle-down theory. But one glaring problem is it doesn't really reflect the Bible. We've been talking about this actually a couple weeks ago. We talked about God's very big gospel. The gospel doesn't just land and stay in our hearts. The good news of Jesus has all kinds of implications about the new world he's creating. It permeates our horizontal relationships, not just our vertical relationship with God. This is something my friend Connie Anderson pointed out to me throughout the book of Acts. The church is tackling these issues head on. They're talking it out. And they're working it out. 
So, for example, last week we looked at God's vision of cross-cultural community in Acts chapter 2. But just four chapters later, right after Pentecost, we learn that the Greek-speaking widows are being ignored and neglected in the church family. Why? Because they don't speak the dominant language. And so they were being neglected, it says. And And so the church talked about it. They didn't just say, well, it'll work itself out. If we just believe the gospel, it'll work itself out. We don't need to talk about it. That's a thorny issue. They didn't do that at all. They, they, they dug in to the issue. And, then, and more importantly, they did something about the issue. And they appointed leaders who could do something about it and organize the church so that there are not people who are being neglected. It's a very brass tacks, let's talk about it and let's do something about it approach. Things got so problematic in the early church that nine chapters later, the leaders of the church have to come together for the first church council. We call it the Jerusalem Council. Basically, God was creating this amazing cross-cultural community, but over time, some Christians were being treated as if they were second-class citizens. And so the growing church had to have a family meeting, and guess what? Talk about it and work it out. See, cross-cultural community may be our calling card as a church, as God's people. We may indeed be a church within the multi-ethnic kingdom of God. But this cross-cultural community does not just happen naturally. It doesn't just trickle down magically. If anything, the things that trickle down is our sin and our division. The church on autopilot is the church divided. And we see this clearly in our passage this morning. In this passage that we just read aloud, Paul is recounting a very difficult experience that he had in Antioch. Antioch was a miraculous cross-cultural community of Jesus. So it was a church that was well-known for its diversity at folks from every walk of life. They were so cross-cultural that people didn't know what to call them. And so this is the place where we first heard the designation Christian. Christian. People just said, yeah, call them Christians. But here's the thing. Their unity, this miraculous cross-cultural unity with difference falls apart. Initially, there was one table despite the many different cultures, the Lord's table. But verse 12 in our passage tells us that Peter divided the table out of fear. He started separating out and only eating with Jewish Christians, separating himself from non-Jewish Christians because they didn't follow certain food laws or eating customs. And when Peter divides the table, the text says, Barnabas follows suit, and so do all the other Jewish Christians. And so Paul has to intervene, which tells us something. Once again, the gospel doesn't magically trickle down into the church community when it comes to difficult things like division, especially division around issues of culture and ethnicity. Paul has to talk about these things. He has to address them. 
He has to work on these things. This community has to do some repenting, some changing, some talking, some doing. The gospel, in other words, must be actively, courageously, and intentionally applied to problems of cultural division. It takes work. It takes hard work. And I believe Paul, therefore, shows us how we can start this hard work at hope. Two words I want to give you. Assessment and alignment. So cross-cultural community doesn't just magically happen, but it comes from what I'll call gospel assessment. In this passage, Paul doesn't just see division and let it pass and say, you know what? It's easier this way. It's just, it's just easier this way. I know, I know that we're all united in Jesus. I know, I know that, that every barrier wall is broken down, as I wrote in Ephesians, Paul would say. So that Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew can eat together in this miraculous cross-cultural community. I know, I know, but it's just so hard. It's just so hard. And so let's just, let's just let it pass. No, that's not what Paul does. Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles, makes an assessment of their community with the good news of Jesus. And it's a humbling assessment and it's a hopeful assessment. It's humbling because it's honest and it's hard. Paul must oppose Peter to his face publicly. Paul doesn't just let it slide. Remember, Jesus told Paul to preach the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And when Paul sees the Gentiles turned effectively into second-class Christians in the church family, he speaks up. And so should we. We need to honestly assess all the ways that we turn other Christians into second-class citizens of the kingdom. Even when it's hard and humbling. But on the other hand, this assessment is hopeful. Paul doesn't assess to condemn and only condemn. He assesses because he believes that the church founded on Jesus with the Pentecost Holy Spirit can do better. He calls Peter and the others hypocrites. That word may not sound hopeful. It actually is because hypocrite was a Greek theater word. It was a theater word. Uh, It was people who wore masks when they were on stage in a drama. Those people who were wearing a mask, pretending to be someone else, were called hypocrites. One scholar says, quote, it came to mean pretense and insincerity. Key phrase here, acting in a fashion that belies one's true convictions. In other words, Paul is saying that the sin of racial division is not who you really are in Christ. It's not who you really are in Christ. You know better. You really do. I really like what one pastor says. Quote, Paul did not simply say to Peter, repent of the sin of racism, you bigot. But rather, he said, repent of the sin of forgetting your gracious welcome by God through the costly sacrifice of Christ. That is, after all, what verses 15 through 17 are all about. We are welcomed by God through Christ and no work of the law, whether that's something like our good works that we do or whether it's something we were born into, whether it's our pedigree, whether it's any kind of social standing that we might think we have. Paul says that does that that is not the basis for your welcome 
in God's family? What is? Jesus. And so Paul, this author says, says, repent of the sin of forgetting that. And he goes on, when you're trying to motivate people by urging them to see their riches in Christ, then you are pointing to their value and dignity in your appeal. You are not putting them down, but lifting them up even as you critique, they say. When we instead use God's grace as a motivator, then we can criticize sharply and directly, as Paul does here. But the listeners will generally be able to perceive that we are nonetheless for them, end quote. I really think that's key. I learned years ago that one of the best ways to correct a child is by telling them that is not who you truly are in Jesus. Because when you do this, you're encouraging them to become who they truly are in Jesus. Their wrongdoing is like a mask. It's play acting. It's it's being like the old man, as Paul would say. The one that's been crucified and dead and put aside. Instead, loving God and loving others is like taking the mask off. It's becoming who you truly are in Christ. And that's how Paul addresses this church. In order to maintain cross-cultural community in this church, they needed to assess all the ways they were wearing masks and not truly living out the truth of our welcome in Jesus, apart from who we are socially. It's humbling to assess all the ways that we can divide as a church, isn't it? We don't want to do it. We get defensive. We fear slippery slopes. All these things might, for us, be reason to just shut it down. And to just be. But as we said, the things that trickle down in this posture of passivity usually are the things that define. We need to assess. We need to assess. Last week I talked about what Rich Vildas calls our racial habits. Remember the story about the giraffes and the elephants. So that a giraffe and a community of giraffes are really good at building homes. And as they're building homes, they also develop this deep passion for hospitality. And they sort of say to themselves, wouldn't it be great to be a community of giraffes that's hospitable to elephants and the elephants come and they're like nothing works for us here when they sit it breaks everything's too high and so Abraham Cho says what needs to happen for hospitality to take place and for a cross-cultural community to thrive is that the giraffes need to rebuild with the elephants And that's a humbling thing through giraffe, but it's a vital thing. They should ask the elephant how to rebuild so they can have a place in the house. And we must do the same as a church. This is humbling and it's hard work, but it's hopeful work because it enables us to pursue who we really are in Jesus. We can be honest without despair because we're in Christ. Now, 
I said two words, assessment. The second word is alignment. Cross-cultural community doesn't just trickle down. It takes assessment, but it takes also alignment. This is the word Paul uses in verse 14. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That word in step is orthopodeo or right walking. Right walking. He says that Peter and the rest of the church in Antioch is not walking correctly. They have correct theory. They have correct belief in their brains. But the way that they're walking is way off course of what they're actually confessing. They are out of alignment. The gospel, in other words, does not just trickle down and change our social relationships in the church magically. We need to align ourselves and align our walk to the gospel. Instead of gospel trickle down, I think Paul changes the metaphor. Gospel alignment. See, I hope you don't hear me saying the gospel is not essential for our church. It absolutely is. We must align ourselves to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. And what that means, not just with our vertical relationship to God, but our horizontal as well. As this flies away. So we align ourselves to God's gospel, which means we align ourselves to his gracious welcome. In verse 16 and 17, Paul says that we are in a right relationship. We are justified. We are made just before God in his court by grace alone. And Jesus himself does this. He makes us right with God. Not our good works, not our ethnicity, not our social standing, not anything except Jesus. So that in Galatians 3, 26, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Now remember, in those days, sons received the inheritance. And so Paul is saying to men and to women, you are all sons of God. In the sense that you all get the inheritance, because why? You are all in Christ. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28 of chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, for Paul, there is no caste system in God's house. And so when it appears, we must realign to the truth of the in Jesus Christ gospel. Our central identity. This in Jesus Christ does not blunt our differences. If anything, it accentuates our differences. It puts them in glorious unity. So we align ourselves to that truth. And then we align ourselves every single day. We don't just do this once. This passage assumes that gospel alignment is continual work. If it was something that the church had to do in the early days, think about all the realignment we have to do. All the baggage that we have. Think about what it means to be a Christian who is constantly realigning our walk to the gospel. I used to run with a Bob Stroller. Do you know what a Bob Stroller is? Bob Stroller is 
basically a really amazing stroller that has bike wheels on it. And the front wheel, it's like a triangle, the front wheel, uh, if it's not aligned, then your baby is going into the ditch. <laughs> and I realized that you, as you're running, you have to constantly and repetitively stop what you're doing and realign. And friends, that is what, if, if there's anything I want you to take away from this morning's message, it's that. When we see our church in 10 years, we see a church that is miraculously cross-cultural. And I said last time, I use the word cross-cultural on purpose, because sometimes you say the word diverse, but you can have a surface diversity with a monoculture. And we really want to pursue what we see in Scripture, which is that the, there is a miraculous cross-cultural community of difference in Christ. If we're going to achieve that, if we're going to even see that as a church and continue to walk through this, then what needs to happen is perpetual realignment to the gospel. To the gospel. It's the gospel that we're aligning ourselves to. Not some other thing or other idea. The good news of Jesus. We need to walk in alignment. It's going to take a lot of talking. It's going to take a lot of assessment and a lot of alignment and practices are going to have to change. See, alignment is hard work. But it it required Peter and Paul to have a hard conversation and to work through some difficult issues. But it is worth it and it is necessary. And it means that, again, if hope is going to be cross-cultural, we need to constantly realign ourselves to the gospel. We need to start viewing divisive issues like racism or any other ism, we need to see these issues as gospel issues, as theological heresies. Paul shows us that you can be theologically orthodox in your thinking, but unorthodox in your walking. You can be off track of what you confess as a gospel believer. So let's not be confused that just because we are a church that sort of has all of our boxes checked, that we are walking in a way that's in alignment with that. We need to humbly admit that we have constant realignment to do in this area. The Holy Spirit can be among us, this passage shows us. And yet we can still grieve the Holy Spirit in our community practices. Paul assumes that you can believe and teach the right things, but not walk in line with it. As it's been said, demons are more theologically orthodox than we are. They're not bending their knee to Jesus or walking in line with it either. So that's our challenge. I think we can be shielded by our good theology, quote unquote, because ticking beliefs are are somewhat easy, but having hard conversations and humbly reassessing our community life is difficult work. It means we need to be ready to be messy. Galatians 2 is a messy situation, isn't it? I'm really glad it's in our Bible, frankly. I'm really glad it's in our Bible because it shows us that healthy cross-cultural community is messy. It also tells us worth it. Jesus is more reliably present in our messes than in our sort of clean enclaves. 
where we think everything is okay. Because after all, we are a community in Christ. We are a community with the Holy Spirit that unites us in our differences. And so let's just pray for this. Lord, would you indeed continue us on this On this journey, Lord, of cross-cultural community, Lord, that we would indeed assess and align the truth of the gospel. Lord, would you use this text in the life of our church as a sober wake-up call? The churches with correct theology can still be off track in their community life but also as a hopeful charter. It is possible. It is possible to display unity among difference in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.